If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. Again, follow along the insert if you don't have a copy of God's Word this morning. uh, We continue in this final act of the book of Mark as he has been unfolding this drama. For those of you who are visiting, we have been working our way uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this gospel account. And... uh, The drama has slowed down quite a bit uh, in the last couple weeks as we have moved into this final chapter of the life of Jesus. Mark has has, uh, chilled a bit with the word immediately and uh, is letting us soak in a little more of what Jesus is doing. And uh, as I said last week, these next several chapters uh, are uh, are one week uh, as opposed to years Uh, that we found ourselves going through in the previous chapters. Jesus, you'll remember in his travels, he ministered in in Galilee, ministered in places outside of the borders and territory of Israel. Now he has made his way intentionally into Judea and specifically into Jerusalem, uh, where the hotbed of Jewish religion lies and therefore Uh, all the flashpoints of um, his ministry and uh, the conflict of his ministry await him. And as we were uh, looked, as we looked at last week, sparks sparks have already begun to fly um, as Jesus um, confronts the religious leaders of his day, specifically on their turf. Um, These are men who supposedly love God, who supposedly are longing for the Messiah. They're waiting for him to come, and yet they are blind to the identity of Jesus, the very one they want. And so our passage today, as we pick it up uh, in the narrative, is uh, in a sense part debriefing of last week's clash in the temple, uh, which we'll refer to briefly, and then it moves to a distinctly new confrontation uh, with these men that we'll talk about as well. And so listen carefully as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through the end of the chapter. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Three, picking up where we left last week. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are two distinct scenes in that passage I just read this morning. What I want to point out is that there also, I think, is a commonality that binds them together, and that's why we're going to look at them together. And I want to do that focusing, though, from one scene to another, and you'll hopefully see the tie between the two. But I want us to hang our thinking and our meditation this morning on God's Word on Two, simple to hear and yet hard to live out truths for us to consider. Of course, I could say that simple to hear and hard to live out for, I think, every truth that I give, but particularly this morning. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes, kids, if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Jesus has the power to do the impossible. Jesus has the power to do the impossible. As we jump back into the story of Mark, it is the morning after. For those of you who were here last week, it's the morning after the overturning of the tables, the clanging of spilled coins as they roll across the floor, the flapping of pigeons and doves as they fly around the temple being released the commotion of confusion. Jesus came into Jerusalem serenely seated on a donkey with the palm branches waving. But he left the day before in this cloud of dust and feathers and oh yeah, a dead tree. A dead tree. The environmentalists are going to love this. You see, it was just yesterday that Jesus was in the temple. And Jesus pronounced judgment on the temple. But on his way in, he spoke to this tree. And this tree, Peter notices, is completely dead. Less than 24 hours and it's completely dead. Verse 21. Peter is acknowledging, he's simply acknowledging this power that Jesus has wielded. He's acknowledging what, verbalizing what, all the disciples are thinking. Jesus just killed that tree. Jesus just spoke and that tree died with his words. 
And as we talked about last week, Jesus didn't do this on a whim, but as a tangible, visible picture of judgment that was coming upon the nation of Israel as a result of their unbelief. And it's a sentence that began to be carried out as the refiner's fire moved into the temple and had his way. But it's interesting, that's kind of a loose end uh, from last week that we, we needed to tie up. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't dwell on the tree. I mean, here's Peter teeing up the tree for Jesus to talk about, for him to go and wax eloquent about yeah, what that tree meant. But instead, Jesus seems to move on. And instead, he brings up a lesson on faith, forgiveness, and the kingdom. And so as we think about Jesus having the power to do the impossible, I want to think about those three things, faith, forgiveness, and the kingdom. First of all, faith. Jesus says, after Peter remarks about this dead tree, Peter, uh, Jesus says, have faith in God. I don't know about you, but it almost seems like an abrupt transition to me. Perhaps Jesus senses the disciples' uneasiness with what is happening and, and what went down just a day earlier. Everything, after all, these Jewish men, everything that they understood and knew about their religion, about their Jewish religion, was being upended slowly by the actions and by the teaching of Jesus. And, and if this tree represented Israel, one can't help but think, am I a fruitless tree? I mean, who knows what was going through the disciples' minds as they see the dead tree, as they saw the righteous anger of the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus, in order to to shore up the insecurities of his disciples, notice what he does. He doesn't speak into their question their unspoken questions following Peter's question with the call to examine your lives. Yeah, let's see if you have fruit. Let's list off what you've done for me lately. No, what does he do? He calls them to look away from themselves immediately. Have faith in God. Have faith in the power that did this to this fig tree. You can almost see Jesus then pointing it all out as he says, standing there, there is a power, men, brothers, that can take this mountain that we're standing on, level the thing to the ground, and throw it into that sea over there. You name it. And that power, well, that person Well, me, I can do it. See, Jesus isn't talking of literal mountain relocation. Mountains in the Old Testament throughout the scripture are a common metaphor for the impossible. Not only that, but when the mountains are spoken about in the Old Testament, they are drenched in messianic hope and fulfillment. Psalm 46, a very familiar one. God is a refuge. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God is a refuge. Zechariah 4, 7. O great mountain before Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. 
Isaiah 44, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. Isaiah 54, 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. Jesus is reminding his disciples. Jesus is instilling confidence in these men that nothing is impossible with God. Jeremiah 27, 5, it is I, the Lord says, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on it. And I give to whomever it seems right to me. It's a simple truth. Jesus has the power to do the impossible but it's one that we forget every day. Well, maybe we think about it in terms of, of the big stuff, the generalities, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty specifics and the mundane moments of our lives, Jesus can't do that. But Jesus takes it a step further. He says not only does this power exist, but this is a power that is yours by faith. Notice that while Peter notes as he's walking by this tree that the power of God, as Peter notes the power of God through his question, Jesus in turn remarks about Peter's power. Through prayer. Prayer, which John Calvin, the great reformer, called the chief exercise of faith. God delights to show that he can do the impossible. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 16, which is an incredibly rich prayer that we've talked about before. He says, I do not, give, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And he goes on and on. And then he says that, he, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he goes on to discuss the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's that power. It's that power that is yours. Through faith, through prayer. Jesus has the power to do the impossible. It's just a reminder for me, it's a reminder for us as a church that we don't pray enough. And maybe we don't pray boldly enough. Yet 1 John 5 says this is the victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is where the power lies. Not in our strategies, not with our positions in government, not with our money or influence, our ability to charm or manipulate, but in the Jesus who can move mountains. And so the first call is to believe in Him. To believe that Jesus has the power to do the impossible. And to believe that you're not an orphan, 
that you're not a servant or not just a servant, but you are a son, you are a daughter, and you are not alone. And the power to do the impossible is yours by faith. So that's the first word under that first point. But then forgiveness. Clearly in this passage, Jesus wants us to believe that while faith is not the source of our power, it is a condition of such power. We've talked about it before, just several weeks ago, I think, that you've, you, we've got to ask, we've got to believe and ask to receive. John, excuse me, James, Jesus' brother, says the same thing in James 1, 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed and driven by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So faith is a condition of that power. But there's another condition that Jesus gives his followers in verse 25. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It kind of seems like it's from left field. But it's a reminder that though we come in weakness, in rawness, in brokenness, we need to be aware of a simple scriptural principle that our sin can indeed hinder our prayers. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the psalmist says, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then 1 Peter 3, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Jesus reminds us and his followers that the posture of our hearts as we come before him to claim that power that has the ability to move mountains, that the posture of our hearts matters. And for you and I to come before the throne of grace upon the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus without reflecting that forgiveness to those around us means that our hearts are far from Him. It doesn't mean you come before Him in prayer in perfect posture. But certainly we need to be mindful. Yes, Jesus has the power to do the impossible, but faith and forgiveness must be present. They are the backbone of effective prayer. And then finally, the kingdom. Under this first point, one of the things that I want to clearly say this morning is that this is not teaching a genie in the bottle God. This is not, these verses are not teaching a name it and claim it kind of Christianity. You can't just take these verses and rip them out of their redemptive context. See, Jesus is teaching on the power of prayer to hearts 
that are present around him, that are united to him by faith, that share his heart, that share his priority for the kingdom and for its coming. And so John 15, 7 says, if, this is Jesus speaking, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so yes, Jesus has the power to do the impossible. That's a power that is yours by faith and with a posture of forgiveness. But it also must be done in an acknowledgement of his sovereignty. I think one commentator I read said this well. He said, when prayer is the source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. You see, yes, there is a restriction to your prayers. There is a restriction to that impossible power. It's the will of God. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. See, Jesus is teaching on the impossible nature of prayer, on the impossible power of prayer in the context of this messianic anticipation. Even his comment about the mountain being moved into the heart of the sea has echoes of Zechariah 14. Let me describe, or let me read it to you. On that day, this is describing the coming of the Lord. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. I think we quoted that last week as Jesus made his way through the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. The whole land shall be turned into a plain. And so the disciples' thoughts, as we've seen recently, their thoughts are on the glory to come. Now, that doesn't mean that they are sanctified thoughts about the glory to come. After all, they wanted the seats of privilege in the glory to come. But their thoughts are there. And Jesus is teaching them on prayer, not thinking about their comfort, not thinking about their prosperity right now. They are ready to kick this thing off. Let's get this kingdom party started. And so, as we see from this text, we can ask. We can step out in faith, but if it's not part of God's priority, the answer will be no. And that doesn't mean that the prayer was ineffective. It simply means that our desires were not in the right place. Remember Jesus' prayer in in the garden? My Father... Let this cup pass from me. The father heard and said no. And Jesus said, not as I will, but as you will. And so in our confidence in the power wielded through prayer, we pray focused on Jesus as not only the source of that power, but the goal, kingdom prayers. Thy will be done. And sometimes I don't know what that is, so Holy Spirit, help me when I pray. Because I trust and I have confidence 
that Jesus has the power to do the impossible. That's the first truth I want us to think about and consider this morning. And there's a second, but before I go to the second, let me just say real quickly, maybe you notice there's no verse 26 in your Bible. Why no verse 26? Well, this English translation, this is one of those small textual issues where uh, the text, the ancient documents that we have as they compile these ancient documents, uh, some have verse 26, some don't have verse 26. There's probably a footnote in your Bible explaining what verse 26 would say if it were up there. But many, many scholars believe that scribes who copied the Scriptures and passed it down before we had Xerox machines, that the scribes wanted to put verse 26 in Mark because in the very same account in Matthew, there is that phrase that doesn't exist here. But the modern scholars have said, no, it's not needed. And so that's why there's no verse 26, little textual uh, issue there. The second truth, and we'll close with this. Not only does Jesus have the power to do the impossible. But as we move into the second scene, Jesus has the authority to disrupt your life. Jesus has the authority to disrupt your life. That is not a fun point. We live to structure our lives. We like controlled environments. We like contingencies anticipated and planned for. That's the way we like it. That's the way the rulers in Jerusalem liked it too. And then Jesus came to town. Remember, it's still the morning after. Jesus saw this fig tree. They're walking through the Mount of Olives. Jesus gives this quick lesson on the power of prayer, on faith, on forgiveness, on the kingdom. Now they're heading into Jerusalem proper, into the city. This young buck, he's not a very old guy, remember. Not a lot of gray on Jesus, if any gray on Jesus. With his band of brothers, and he returns to the scene of disruption that he brought about just a day earlier. And the, the religious establishment is there. They got the, the crime tape. They are this whole thing wrapped off. They're trying to like figure out what went down here. What is happening? And up comes Jesus. And taking a loose, loose, very loose, modern translation of verse 28, these guys see Jesus say, who the heck do you think you are? I mean, what gives you the right to do all this? The issue is authority. What authority do you have? Something that Jesus established or sought to establish throughout his ministry, successfully among many people. Throngs of people who had welcomed him into the city just a day earlier. Mark 1, 22 and 27. They were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority. What is this, they said? A new teaching with authority. Mark chapter 2. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, Jesus says to the man. Get up. 
take up your mat and walk. See, Jesus had proclaimed it through his words. He had proclaimed it through his actions that Jesus had authority from God. Jesus had authority as God. But these men who meet Jesus and confront him, they refuse to believe it, despite all the evidence they've seen. And Jesus could flat out tell them, but he knows that they really don't want to hear what authority he has to do what he did yesterday. And besides, that would just escalate things way too quickly. And so in classic rabbinic fashion, this is something that wasn't unique to Jesus. He asked them a question about John, his cousin, the one who had prepared the way for him. And he says in verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And and now they were in a pickle. Now they were in a quandary. If they say yes, then Jesus says, well, then why didn't you believe him? Why did you kill him? And if they say no, then it puts them at odds with all these people that are listening, all these people that have gathered to see the hubbub at the temple. And therefore, it puts their power at risk. You see, these three groups of men, chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders, made up what was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body of that time. And they're all represented here. Mark fleshes them all out. The chief priests are those who were charged with the temple and they oversaw what went on in the temple. And their authority came from birth. They were born into this role. And then you had the teachers of the law, the theologians, the biblical scholars of the day, the ones who interpreted the law and often added to the law. And their authority was hard earned through education and through tutoring. And then you had the elders. Those are the heads of the leading families, the patriarchs of society, and their authority came from economic and social standing. They all have authority. They all love their positions of power and influence. And now this young teacher is coming in and he's threatening everything that they hold dear. Who the heck does he think he is? And so like good politicians, these men are careful when they answer Jesus' question and they take what we might call the agnostic route. We don't know. We don't know. And Jesus says, well, if you can't come to a conclusion about John, you're not going to come to a conclusion about me. The question's insincere. And so the larger point is that Jesus just doesn't answer these men. Jesus has revealed himself as the one to whom all must bow, and they have already rejected him. Jesus had the authority to disrupt their lives, even if they don't see it. Not only that, but the disruption was saying something. It was speaking something loud and clear. But getting back to the temple and the context of the temple specifically, you, Jesus was doing something in redemptive history. Jesus was giving prelude to a reality with all this disruption at the temple that he would replace the temple. 
But there's disruption there. Particularly in light of this conversation as a Jesus has the authority to disrupt our lives. To move us where we don't want to go. To change us. To make us patient. To make us dependent. To expose our sin. To use whatever means he sees fit to bring glory to himself through us. These Chief priests, teachers of the law, these elders, they, they missed the point of the disruption. They missed, they missed it. Because they didn't recognize the authority behind it. I think one of the takeaways for us is as we acknowledge that Jesus has the authority to disrupt our lives, that we can say, as children, as sons and daughters, we can hear the voice of Jesus saying, I'm bigger than this. Whatever that disruption is. And that disruption for us comes in all shapes and, and sizes, relational strain, sickness, disease, financial strain, whatever. Jesus says, I'm bigger than this. I'm in this. This will pass. Learn from this. Friends, whatever God is doing in your lives, be reminded of His power to do the impossible and His authority to do the disruptive. And I'm not saying that every disruption in your life is directly from the hand of Jesus. Jesus is not into messing with His people. He's concerned about loving His people. about causing them and making them reflect His glory. And so as I've said before, it's worth asking the question, God, what are you doing in this? This seems so disruptive. Show me. Show me for your glory, for the kingdom for my good. Jesus has the power to do the impossible. He has the authority to disrupt our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth displayed in history through Jesus' actions here at the temple, through his words before these men. Father, may we not have hearts hardened to your work in our lives, but may we have hearts of flesh, soft. May we have hearts of wisdom by your Spirit to discern what is flat-out evil, what needs to be prayed against, and what is healthy disruption for the sake of moving us of making us, of changing us. O Spirit of wisdom, give wisdom to us in these things, both as we experience them, them ourselves as well as we 
give counsel and walk with one another through the various challenges that we face. Oh, Father, we pray all these things with thanksgiving. In the name of Jesus, amen.